Welcome to the Empowered to Connect podcast, where we come together to discuss a healing-centered approach to engagement and well-being for ourselves, our families, and our communities. I'm J.D. Wilson, and I am your host. And today in the show, we've got uh, Jackie Rowfields, who's an alumni counselor at the Soulsville Charter School. She's also an educational consulting specialist. Um, she is, uh, without a doubt, one of our favorite people on earth, especially in the space of having conversations around uh, difficult topics, be it um, be it race or ethnicity or culture or um, issues where we are interpersonally interacting with people who are different than us. And so uh, Jackie uh, gives talks all the time to um, school groups and organizations about these types of things. We wanted to have her on today um, with National Adoption Awareness Month happening. We wanted to have her um, to talk about how do we engage in conversation without defensiveness? How do we engage in conversation and begin to filter and read and eliminate our own biases. Um, And the reason we want to have those conversations is because, as as you know, if you have ever been around adoption um, or foster care in any way, shape, or form, you know that it is a complicated situation. And uh, there are lots of emotions, lots of hurt, lots of grief, lots of loss, um, lots of joy, lots of happiness, all all encompassing within this structure of adoption and foster care. And uh, it is um, with great sadness that a lot of us look around the country at a one-sided narrative when it comes to adoption all the time or foster care. It is with great uh, joy when we see people willing to step into the messy and hard conversations and to engage there um, while remaining focused on the dignity of the human being. So we wanted to have Jackie in to talk today about how do we avoid defensiveness? How can we begin um, having conversations? What's the most important thing to do in these conversations where we're crossing uh, natural dividing lines that normally divide us socially? And, um, and you're just going to love her. So without any further ado, here she is, Miss Jackie Rowfields. Well, all right, as I mentioned in the opening here, we've got Jackie Rowfields with us today. And Jackie is uh, not just in front of the program and in front of mine personally, but uh, maybe the best person that I know to have this conversation today. And so, uh, Jackie, thank you so much for being with us today. And, and what, why don't we start with this? If you don't mind just kind of giving people um, a professional context for you, I know you've, we've had you on before, but just kind of what, what you do in your role now and kind of maybe a little bit of your background professionally. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> Hi, everyone. Um, yeah, absolutely. So excited to be here today. And JD, always delighted to get a chance to spend a few minutes with you. Um, JD and I go way back to yeah. my days at elementary school in Binghamton, where he and I worked together really um, as community advocates, parent advocates. Um, I am now serving at Sosville Charter School. What, what, to the tornadoes? <laughs> Uh, and I get a chance to work with the seniors and the alumni who have graduated from Soulsville and gone on to whatever post-secondary pathway, be it four-year, two-year, military, some go straight into, you know, the job market. And now we have enough students who are parents, who are becoming parents. So even embracing those young people who, as they become parents. So that's, awesome. that's my day gig. You know, awesome. as most people, I got a side gig. <laughs> which is all things race, class, and bias. And so love to have conversations around those topics as well. Yeah. So for those of you outside of Memphis, both Binghamton and, and Soulsville are, are schools, are neighborhoods uh, inside of the Memphis uh, kind of metro area. And so um, 
Jackie, I, I know that, you know, one of the first, I, I told the story last time we were all in, so I'll, I'll briefly overview it now. One of the first interactions we ever had was, um, you overheard me talking to uh, <laughs> someone in the school. I was trying to get some volunteers to come help their birthday parties. And I mentioned, yeah, this might be the only time these kids feel celebrated for birthdays all year. And, um, and this is in the context of an elementary school that was in a, a, a pretty pretty underserved neighborhood here in Memphis. And so underserved, under-resourced, whatever word you want to use for that. Um, and Jackie, as soon as I got the phone, she was like, and I think your words were so kind because they were like, Jenny, I just want to challenge you on that. And really inside your problem, it was like a, you, know, you wanted to just slap me upside my head and like an ignorant little boy. So um, I, I, it was the day that I kind of, you know, learned the principle that I'm wanting us to talk about today. I'll set this up this way. Like it's, um, when this airs, it's going to be part of National Adoption Awareness Month. And um, this for so, so many people um, in this conversation of adoption or, um, or, uh, being a birth mom or an adoptee, or um, if you're a supporting family, you work at a church, it's very supportive. Or if you're um, just a human being that's familiar with this at all, there's there's all kinds of feelings that this can elicit. Um, yes. And one of the things that we have noticed kind of in our country over the last several years is the separation between uh, listeners and talkers and yes. the people that um, are uh, are doing both. And so why don't we kind of start from the standpoint of what, why is it important for us to, uh, when we encounter these difficult conversations to, to take a listening first approach? Oh man, I love putting this in the context of uh, National Adoption Week coming up, right? Because um, first of all, and I say this to everyone, and you probably heard your mother say this too, you have one mouth in two years, right? So you <laughs> yeah. should be doing twice the amount of listening that you are doing talking. But somehow we... We flip that on on its ear and we feel like we should always be doing talking, right? The person who's in charge is the person who's talking and not realizing that really you're learning when you're listening. Mm. And when you think about this in the context of families and adoptions and like you said, just how we function as a, a living being in society, we've got to listen to one another. We have got to listen to one another. I think that's really part of the incredible challenge we're facing as a country right now is that everyone's talking and trying to get their point across and no one feels like they should be in a position where they should be just listening to one another. Yeah. Well, and I think about oftentimes these conversations are not just conversations of crossing family lines or bloodlines. They're also crossing cultural, ethnic lines, um, sometimes with even historical, sometimes cultural lines with historical context. Um, and so as I've heard you do a lot of times before, would you mind just kind of opening up that conversation about, you know, when we are, when we are approaching kind of transcultural or transethnic lines, what is it that we, how is it that we need to begin approaching those conversations and, and thinking about those uh, situations? So Judy, something came to my mind when you're talking, when we think about cultures and how we function uh, within different cultures and even, and, and it can be ethnic culture, but even within a family, right? A family has a certain kind of culture yeah. on your job. Your job has a certain kind of work culture. Within cultures, communication looks different. You know, it, yeah. different cultures have different ways to communicate with one another. Now, what's interesting about that is listening transcends culture. Listening is always 
pretty consistent across the board. How we speak to one another may be different. The language we use, uh, the proximity when we're talking, how close we are, how far away we are, what's comfortable in terms of personal distance. All those things may change, but listening requires silence and it requires tuning in. Um, and that transcends almost every kind of culture, work culture, home culture, ethnic culture. Listening looks the same no matter what space you're in. And one of the things that I that I uh, say all the time, and I got this actually from my husband, I have to credit him with this. He says, oftentimes we're so busy trying to be right that we forget about doing what's right. We're so concerned with being right that we forget to do what's right. And oftentimes doing the right thing requires you to understand whatever the thing is, right? And how do you gain understanding? You have to listen first. You have to listen first. Uh, And that's just a challenge for so many people. Again, because we've been trained to believe that the person who's doing the talking is either the person that's a leader or the person that's in control. And that transcends culture, culture, age, workplace, school, transcends almost any setting you can possibly be in. Well, I think about when, um, when you're crossing over into another area of, of humanity, like no matter what the division is, um, you know, if there's a certain power dynamic that exists there, whether it's, whether it is, um, an ethnic thing or if it's financial or, or even just positional, you're talking about the workplace, if it's a, a boss employee relationship or whatever, there tends to be, um, stereotypically there's a lack of listening amongst the more powerful person that is interacting with the person in a, in a position of less power. And I think that, you know, one of the things that begins to come up when that's questioned, um, we become very defensive in those situations of, of trying to explain why we're not wrong or why we're okay to be assuming the things we're assuming. Um, can you talk about defensiveness for a second and kind of where that comes from? And maybe the, maybe some of the ways that we can see, can be introspective and see into that within our own selves? Yeah, it's really easy to become defensive and really defensiveness is a fear of, looking like you're less than an expert, right? You, again, we're so convinced that if we're talking, it means we're in leadership and we're supposed to be in charge. We don't equate listening with actually being a good leader and being in charge. And when you become defensive, it's because you're feeling challenged on something that you're supposed to know or you're supposed to have right or you're supposed to be in charge of. So imagine being in a situation where you are you are the leader and instead of always feeling like you have to be the one talking, be the one that's right, you create space where you're listening to other people. I mean, a lot of the leadership books that are out now talk about the importance of creating space, creating an opportunity to get other ideas. So if you're if you're in a position where you're always feeling like you are defensive, you need to take a step back and really examine what what is it I'm really afraid of? Am I afraid that I'm, I'm do I have imposter syndrome here? Am I afraid that um, my own values are being challenged? There's some issue going on internally that you need to do some self-examination. Because, you know, as a person who just historically is marginalized as a Black person, as a Black woman, you know, we're often the group of people who are pushed to the side and we have to elbow our room in in order to be heard so often. 
from that perspective, I can tell you, I'm not sharing my thoughts and ideas because I want to negate what you're saying. I'm trying to create something that's stronger and more powerful. Mm. So put that in a family context, right? If you're in a family context, and, it, and especially a family that's a blended family, ethnically, you've, you know, you, you've adopted people into your family uh, that creates a beautiful multicultural family, but only one voice in the family is the dominant voice because there's not space to hear how other things are done, how other things are approached from other cultural perspectives, then that's, you need to take time and pause and think, think through that. Think, think about that. Well, and one of the things that I think that, you know, I've learned from you over, over the years, but just that um, I think in, in this ETC kind of world that's been created, I've, I realized the burden. So for me, as the, as the, you know, dad of a family with um, two kids through adoption, two kids biologically, like I can't take my kids anywhere I've not been before personally. And so if I want to go to places of creating space to talk about race, to talk about ethnicity, to talk about, to talk about feelings, to talk about how we feel when sad things happen or how we, um, how we process through grief or, um, you know, even even making space to grieve uh, stories and stories origins or, or wishing stories origins were different, whatever. I've, I've got to be able to navigate my kids there. And so why, why might it be really important for my kids? I, 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 maybe a better question is, you know, for parents who are listening to this and starting to feel a little bit of panic of like, oh my gosh, I am always this person. Like how, how can we begin to model for our kids and, and to really pave the way for our kids to walk into some of those situations and, and heal? JD, first of all, I love your beautiful family and you, your family is a great idea of exactly what I'm envisioning that parents need to be able to do because you've got two children by adoption, two children by birth, two of your children are as brown as I am, okay? So if you've decided that their experience looks a certain way and your son and your brown daughter are telling you, no, dad, this is really what our experience is looking like, but you're not willing to listen or you don't want to hear what they're telling you, uh, think about the impact of that on your entire family. Again, that's why the listening aspect is so important in all of our relationships, family relationships, work relationships. When you were talking, I was also thinking about the multicultural church and I don't, I'm going to get in trouble with this. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I got to go there. <laughs> Oftentimes, we want to build a church, a multicultural church, that reflects the diversity that God's created, right? It's a beautiful vision. And what happens is we create a church where the leadership is still monoculture, mm. but we have a sprinkling of multicultural people, and then we think we've arrived at a multicultural church. And I promise that those people are trying to tell you, no, this is still one predominant church. Uh, but those voices get boxed out. We don't, we don't hear that. We don't hear that. It's not that people aren't talking all the time. Oftentimes it's just that we're not hearing what they're saying or we're interpreting what they're saying to, you know, confirm our own bias. Mm. So what's the way forward in that? Like thinking through church, workplace, you know, family dynamics, like what's, what's the way forward in, in that situation? Yeah. 
Judy, you know this. We learned this working in the neighborhood, right? It really takes some humility. Like you have to be willing to humble yourself and give up that position of always being right. First of all, no one is always right. right. So that's a very haughty, prideful kind of position to take. You, But you've got to be willing to say it's okay to be vulnerable and, and to not have all the answers and be willing to get answers from other people. Be willing to hear that, you know, you may believe that's right, but let me share my perspective with you that might expand where you are or what you what you believe. It's it's not as simple and binary as right and wrong, left and right all the time. And I think that's a lot of times we go wrong because we need it to be either right or wrong. Right. Yeah. It is. And I mean, it's like with humanity being so complex uh, in and of itself, like we we miss out on opportunities for us to experience the beauty of, of uh, having diverse friendships and having diverse experiences. And um, so, you know, when, when we, again, when we frame this in the, in the world of, of kind of adoption um, and particularly thinking about the, the mixture of um, both biological families of origin and um, adoptive families and um uh, those kids as they grow older, adoptees. So let, let me chime in with, uh, I, I'm thinking about the exercise of challenging your own biases. Um, and when, when you're starting that journey, uh, adoptive family, and really we're talking about that specifically because of the week that we're, you know, we're celebrating the national adoption, but, the exercise that you need to engage on is introspection into your own biases. And what's complicated about it is that a lot of them are invisible. A lot of the things that we are biased towards or for or against are actually invisible to us. Hmm. Uh, And so you have to almost, you know, people who are really, who, who do mindful exercises and slow down and stop breathing Uh, listen to their breathing. It's almost like that. It's like you have to slow down on every thought and think, hmm, how did I get to that place? Uh, How is it that I believe that thing I believe? Uh, And some things are really big, huge, and obvious. I'll give you an example from, you know, something that's pretty common. Driving, you enter a bad area of town, right? You see... um, person of color, man of color, African-American man, Latino man crossing the street, and your first inclination may be to lock the door, okay? So where does that come from? I'm talking about, I'm not telling you not to lock the door, okay? If you got to lock the door because your instinct's kicking in and you want to lock the door, but I do want, I want people to stop and think about for a moment, why do I feel like I need to lock the door? Um, What have I learned and how have I learned that and how do I unlearn some of the things that just are second nature to me? Because it may seem like it's appropriate in your mind to lock the door when you see that man walk across the street. But what you don't realize is you have applied that thought process in other places in your life and you're just not cognizant of it. Again, it's like stopping to think about how you're breathing if you're a person that practices mindfulness. It's the same concept. And it really takes time and practice, J.D. It's something I I actually, I have to do it every day. Every day I have to check myself on some bias I have. 
Well, and I, I was going to say, uh, often the most helpful tool in that equation is a friend or a person that is that is from a different place than you are that can call you out on some of that and help you with that initial process. Because oftentimes you can still, <laughs> if all you've been around are people with the same inherent biases as you, you're not going to recognize that as wrong. Even no matter, you can stop breathing and you still won't <laughs> notice and you still won't notice those things. Right. And so, you know, I think that's where, that's where relationships become so important. So you talk about whether it's a multicultural church or whether it's just if you live in a diverse area, just making a way to build relationships with people across natural dividing lines that, that you might have. We have to find a way to build relationships there so that our learned experiences begin to conflict with those inherent biases, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then we You're can right. recognize those, you know? You're right. Um, and, you know, and you know what's so interesting about it, J.D.? We often automatically think that we need to challenge whatever negative notions we have about. Yeah. But we need to challenge our positive notions too, right? Because (laughs) we think highly of some things that really don't deserve it. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Well, and I just even think about the danger, even as an adaptive dad, the the danger of over or under inflating stories when talking with our kids about biological families. Like it is, it is wildly important for me to not lionize or demonize um, one of our kids' birth parents if, if I don't know the story, right? Right. Now, if there's a, if there's an experience that we've had that we can hold on to or a relationship that's ongoing where, where there's a kid, like the kid's able to independently sort of verify mom and dad's narrative that we're sharing. That's one thing, but I've got to be very careful in those situations. And and same with public figures, right? Like, you know, we're we're learning this as we watch statues come down across the country. There's a a huge debate. um, And a lot of it centers around our historical collective thoughts that didn't dive deep enough into a person's character. Um, And then there's also an overemphasis on that. Well, we remove that, we remove racism and, No, (laughs) you're so right. You're so right. And, you know, one of the things that's really going on right now is this conversation in education around critical race theory, CRT, critical race theory, uh, and how it's taught in elementary schools. First of all, let me say this for the record. Critical race theory is not being taught in elementary schools. It's 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 unfortunate that critical race theory is this buzzword catch all word. Um, because critical race theory is actually very complicated and it is very theoretical and it's usually something that's reserved for higher education. But we understand, we know what people are talking about when they're saying critical race theory at this point. And it's really just history. Uh, We're trying to teach, you know, what I would consider, we're just teaching American history and people are putting a spotlight on the pieces that, Uh, of our American history that deal with race, race relations, and even more specific, the spotlight is being placed on the power dynamic because that's the issue. You could never use the word race, racism, ethnicity, and still talk about the economic power, you know, power pieces at play. Uh, And I think people would be frustrated and upset about that, but that's just the reality of our history. Yeah. If we, I'm sorry, and I know you're going to chime in, but I was going to say, if we could really stop for a minute and listen to what the real concerns are, we might be able to figure out how to address the concerns in a more constructive way than saying we don't want critical race theory in our schools. Well, one of the most challenging things that 
uh, I've had a friend who's pushed me on during this last few years um, has been just to to challenge my own biases, which you started you started with, and that sounds like a, a really simple thing to bring in in this moment, but. I tend to lose a lot of patience when I watch people complain about things that I might have a above average knowledge about. And I forget in those moments that I've been so fortunate for, I mean, for over half my life now to be having detailed, intense, regular conversations with people in different situations than me and, and, and having these conversations, I, I begin to think like, how can you make boogeymen out of these different topics? And then when I talk to someone who will genuinely share their concerns with me, I 100% understand the concerns, right? So I think that's exactly what you're saying is like when we will, when we will, I was just opening his Coke over here. That's okay. Uh, When we will, when we will stop and have um, real conversations and see people as human beings who have inherent value and are, are worthy of sharing with us how they feel and us take them at their word for how they feel, we can begin to really progress through these conversations. And I would venture to guess that, you know, especially in this conversation of whether it's critical race theory or whether it's American history or whether it's um, conversations about adoption, conversations about um, emotions, feeling, if we are willing to have calm, um, eyeball to eyeball, real conversations with people, um, we are going to find that we are almost all way closer than we think we are um, to, to finding solutions to our issues, you know? Um, and so I think that, uh, you know, on, on all issues right now where things are inflammatory, because that's, that's what this, you know, the, the power of social media is that we're able to communicate these the news travels at a way faster rate and um, information travels at a way faster rate, but it's also devoid of the ability to hear and see someone um, in person and to see them as a person. Um, That's and right. when we lose that sense of humanity with somebody, it, it, it robs us of uh, real human relationship. And so, so true. So true. I'm thinking about um, many, many moons ago, I had the opportunity to work with a colleague. This woman um, was a Caucasian woman, a very tall Dutch woman, as a matter of fact. And um, and I, moment of pure transparency. At that time, many, many years ago, I would say I was pretty biased against white women. I just thought their lives were easy. You know, they just could go get manicures. They had like really expensive strollers and they were jogging with their kids on the sidewalk and their life was just all sunshine and pedicures and bonbons, okay? Many, 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 many years ago. And um, as fate would have it, I had to work really closely with this young woman who we were about the same age at that time and we were both young moms at that time. And it was so such a blessing for me because I found out that we had so much more in common Mm. than we had differences, okay? As young moms, our day-to-day lives were all about, you know, laundry and homework and dinner and bath time. And she and I just bonded over those conversations that just, um, I think everyone in America probably has right if you're a parent if you if you're a parent you already know this life right our lives are probably pretty similar unless you're in that very small percentage where you've got a nanny that's doing everything and 
that relationship with her almost 30 years ago now, 25, 30 years ago, really reshaped my whole concept of how we go about prejudging people in their lives. When I could sit with her and we would work on a project for school and then, you know, she would get a phone call about, you know, so-and-so sick and they got, they got an ear infection. And I was like, she's dealing with the same things I'm dealing with. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So you're right. It's when we can actually connect to one another's humanity that's when we can really, I think, advance as a civilization. And JD, I, you know, people say, what are like some of the practical steps when you're trying to be a better listener? And it's not rocket science, right? Yeah. It's really not. It's just, first of all, you've got to want to hear what the person is saying. If I'm talking to you and I don't want to hear what you're saying, I can be quiet, but I'm still not listening. I can be, you know, going over my grocery list. I need to stop. I need to pick up some Dawn dish soap. I gotta. I can be quiet, yeah. But I cannot hear a mumbling word, right? That right. you're saying, hundred percent. Right. So you first have to be interested in hearing what the person is saying. And if if you have to tell yourself, I need to pay attention to what JD is saying, then you need to start there. Yeah. You need to start there. Yeah. First step. Yep. That's so helpful. Jackie, thank you for coming on with us today and just talking through this. Are we out of time already? We've got two minutes left. This is, I mean, this is obviously. Well, it's all it's, it's all it's also so much longer of a conversation than just a one part deal. So we'll have okay. to we'll have to have you back on and we'll talk some more about this in the future. But um, thank you so much for for talking with us and um, and we can't wait to talk to you again soon. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Well, a huge thank you to Jackie. And um, as we talked about in that episode, my, my hope is that uh, maybe this was not a transformative episode for you in that you walk away with pages and pages of notes. Maybe what it helps you do is walk away and later on today with a coworker or a neighbor or uh, somebody you find yourself in conversation with who uh, may have a different background than you or a different viewpoint than you, uh, maybe we remember just to listen and to let there be silence and to let there be uh, understanding um, based on nothing else except for uh, the dignity of the human being standing across from us. And so I I hope and I would um, encourage all of us to take that approach in our conversations this week um, and see where it leads us. Next week, we've got an incredible, powerful episode coming to you. um, And it it is... um, a first for us, we have, we have yet to have um, all three members of the adoption triad, a, a birth mother, an adoptee, and an adoptive mom um, on the same episode before. And we wanted to have a conversation between a birth mom, an adoptee, and an adoptive mom uh, next week. And so we will have... Uh, that happened. And it was a a long conversation, many uh, tears, lots of laughter involved. Um, It is just, it's powerful. And I would just encourage you to to make plans to tune in uh, next week um, for that episode. Until then, for Kyle Wright, who engineers and edits all of our audio, for Tad Jewett, the creator of the music behind ETC, for Mo and Tana Ottinger, and for everybody here at the ETC team, I'm JD Wilson, and we'll see you next week on the Empowered to Connect podcast. 